0: Hi, it's Aaron. I'm your regular co host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning in and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out with a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening.
1: Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for speechtherapypd.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So, <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that. <laughs> but um, it's First Bite. So, if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code First Bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And, Aaron, do you that want to? That
0: includes all the
1: pod courses. Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. We have four. We have we First Bite. Yeah, we do. It's Speech Uncensored. Um, And in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the Speech Link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like, fangirl crush. She's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Okay. All right. So promo code is? First bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B Y T E because it does it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo! <laughs> Hi folks and welcome to First Bite fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC SLP, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP CF SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So tonight's guest is the one and only, the lovely Ms. Erin Ford, MSP, CCC, SLP. And girl, I don't think I'll ever not be super excited and cheesy proud to hear the CCC part of that. (laughs) And she agreed. And she is our favorite adopted Southern belle by route of Rochester, New York, who has been, I believe this last month, you've been to Cincinnati, Raleigh, no, where, where all have you been? I can't keep track with your jet setting ways Lally, lately.
0: Pittsburgh.
1: Not Pittsburgh.
0: Philly. Yeah, Philly, Pittsburgh. Cincinnati. Asheville. Asheville.
1: You had a night in Asheville. Richmond. Yeah. This, this is a fantastic way to celebrate getting your seeds. I'm kind of jealous. Um, Our highlights so far have been that the tiny human number one has learned Chinese and the tiny human um, number two thinks he's learned Chinese and yay for a new school and language immersion. Whoop whoop. On that note, um, Dr. Faye Murray is on later this month and she will talk about uh, all the lovely things uh, for best practice for evaluating uh, children that are bilingual. So um, stay tuned for that one. That one will be fantastic. Uh, And, and folks, in case you haven't picked up on it, uh, this opening is a little bit more spontaneous and a little bit more focused on the joy because today's episode is a tough one. In today's episode, we are going to talk about grace and grief and how the seven, seven stages of grieving postpartum um, depression, anxiety disorders, PTSD, and how they can all impact the quality and caliber of our speech therapy sessions and the buy-in from the families. Now um, I am always honest and open, probably to a fault. um, And I suffered severe postpartum anxiety after our first was born and it changed me as a home health practitioner because how are we supposed to reach Our families, when they are in the throes of grief, postpartum, and PTSD about having a new child and then having a new child who has special needs. And we have to have grace in reaching out to them. And this is something that, um, Lord knows, it wasn't covered in any graduate work I did or undergraduate work um, within the world of speech pathology. We covered the seven stages of grief in a special education class I took as a minor. And that was it. But um, Aaron, if memory serves correct, didn't your grad program like really focus on this? Um, yeah, well, we had a counseling class, um which okay. I think
0: was not a lot of um programs have that. And we also I mean, we touched on it in our like clinical evaluation
1: class. They talked a lot about grief. All right. Well, shout out to those teachers, those professors. Thank you for, for doing that because it's, it's something that we, unfortunately, unless you're trained for it or have had personal experience with it, you may not recognize the signs and symptoms. So that's what today is on grace and grief. And we're going to try to deliver it with a little bit of humor and joy, because otherwise this makes for one really depressing hour. And that is not the intent of this. So yay, happy thoughts. But um, there it is. So on that note, Erin, what are the seven stages of grief? Yay. They started
0: out as five stages, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler, um, but they then added two more stages. So with the seven stages, you have shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, testing and acceptance. And shock and testing were two of the stages that they added later on in more research that they did. And we can go into each of those if we you
1: know. Yes, and and I want to, but for everybody that's questioning right now why we need to know these seven stages and why we need to know PTSD and postpartum depression, um, there's a really good article. It's in SIG 1, Volume 1, Part 4 from 2016 Maternal Postpartum Depression and Communication Development in Infants Is Their Role for the SLPs by Nancy Hall from the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders in the University of Maine. And she says, It's not the SLP's role to engage in the screening or identification of maternal depression, rather that they be in the position to assist mothers by referring for depression screening and potential treatment. And we are held to this according to the ASHA Code of Ethics, in particular, Principle Ethics Rule B regarding our application to use every resource, including referral for optimal client patient care. And those of us that work with the world of early intervention, we are in their homes and right there to see like what Aaron said, the seven stages of grief. Okay. All right. So then go through them for us. Okay. Please, so,
0: um, first one is shock. Um, usually, you know, disbelief. Um, if it specifically, if it was like a sudden or unexpected loss, even if it wasn't, sometimes there's still that shock and disbelief. Um, A lot of these include like not necessarily a natural reaction, whether it's laughing or just numbness, certain things that that immediate reaction isn't always, you know, they can't control that reaction as much. Um, Then, and the important thing to know is that people grieve all differently. Um, these stages aren't necessarily in order. With some, You can go back to one stage, go forward to another stage, experience these stages in a different order. This is all dependent upon the person. Um, and they talk a lot about how some people wear their emotions on their sleeve. Others will experience it internally and don't ever judge how a person experiences their grief. Just ch- try to understand it. Um, so then the next stage would be denial. You're still recovering kind of a sub state of shock. Um, you know, sometimes people do this to avoid the pain of dealing with what
1: happened. And, and, and I've seen that when we go out to do some of our initial evals, like if you get a kiddo right out of the NICU or the PICU and the family, For lack of a better phrase, hasn't come to terms with a new diagnosis or with like a setback. Like say a child was born typically developing, but then something happened, or um, especially infantile spasm disorders. Um, when they when they set in, the family may not have known anything was there. And then they can be in denial that these little ticks are actually spasms and seizures. And and so it may not happen um right away it could take a couple of sessions for you to pick up on the fact that the family is in a state of shock or denial
0: and yeah. we i mean we see this a lot with our kids that are going through the process of like being diagnosed with autism or you know any diagnosis really sometimes this i feel like is is a common stage that we'll see um the next stage is pain which is pretty self-explanatory. Everyone's experienced pain. Um some people try to avoid it, some people use coping mechanisms to deal with it. Um and everyone's going to deal with their pain a little bit differently. Um the next stage is anger. Again, pretty self-explanatory, getting upset at why this is happening, um lashing out sometimes and I feel like we'll see this in families if, you know, getting frustrated at, at you or someone else, and you just don't understand where the anger is coming from. Because again, people take very different amounts of time to grieve. And sometimes you think this anger is coming out of nowhere, when in reality, it's based in their grief.
1: And this is where as a practitioner, when you go to do home health settings, Um, unfortunately you may walk in on spousal arguments or see the anger being lashed out towards a typically developing peer. And, and, and those, that raises a lot of red flags, uh, because that can cycle and develop unhealthy relationships, uh, and, and the special needs child and the typically developing peers, um, or the typically developing siblings relationship will already be strained and at the same time beautiful. However, if the anger is displaced on that other child, it can set that sibling relationship up for failure as well.
0: Yeah. And I think that it anger is one of those that when someone approaches something with anger, a lot of people automatically get defensive. And I think it's important I've always learned, you know, you never really know what someone's going through, and anger is one of those emotions that you it's very quick and easy to jump to the conclusion of, you know, them being I, I don't know the right word, but you can it's easy to jump to the wrong conclusions with anger, I think.
1: Yes assuming that the person is right. short tempered or thinking less of the person. And, and in fact, they're just stuck in that stage right. of grief. Um, yeah, I know I've done that. I, and that stems from my PTSD from my violent ex-husband. So when I walk into the home and the family is like stuck in an anger cycle because of the new diagnosis, whatever it may be, I'm hypersensitive to it and it puts me on edge. But that's me dealing with my own baggage. I mean, every person that encounters and works with these little ones that we're called to serve, every person on the team has their own things that they're working through. So we have to um we have to meet in the middle, which um mm, that can be a hard thing, especially when you have um a little bit of Irish and are short tempered mm-hmm. to begin with. <laughs> Yeah, not that I'm talking about myself and using self-deprecating humor at all. <laughs> okay, continue. Sorry, friend. oh, you're good. The next
0: one is bargaining, which is an interesting stage. They it's a lot of times stem from guilt and trying to gain some sort of control over the situation. When you kind of look back to if we had done this, if we had gone to this doctor, if we fought harder, if You know, I was more empathetic if I had done this. So this is really trying to find some sense of control, essentially. And Mm -hmm. it does a lot of times stem from guilt. And that's a hard – that's hard because this is when people, you know,
1: start to blame themselves for what happened. So, um, those of us that, um, have gone through that, getting a diagnosis for your kid, uh, I will always feel like it's my fault that Bear had to have speech therapy due to a hearing loss in the helmet due to the fact that I had a wonky uterus and had to have all the surgery. And rationally, clinically, I know that there was nothing that I could have done different. But as a parent, 's a it's, that's a hard pill to swallow because what if we had caught my uterine issues earlier what if and um thank you, miss Crystal for helping me work through that little bit all those years ago um and if you didn't catch her, um we did the latency periods and the power of waiting um and we're really um um we touch a lot on that in that in that episode but For our children that have, um, whose parents are coming to grip with this, they do, um, it will present in the evals, well, what if we had taken a different uh, medication instead of a Zofran? Because, you know, if the kid has a cleft and it's directly correlated with Zofran intake during pregnancy, but they're worried about the mom staying pregnant because of dehydration and vomiting, those kind of what ifs. And, and that's when it's our job as the practitioners to relay that back to the pediatrician for that continuity. Of care. We
0: also, I think as humans think that we have more control over things than we actually do. So that bargaining is coming from that desire to feel like as bad as, as it is to think that you were to blame, like to think that you have more control over that situation makes you feel like you have more control over the next situation and you can fix it the next time. If that makes sense.
1: Yes. Perfect sense. Um, University of Pitt and their psych program. They're pretty phenomenal. I I, (laughs) I would say so. I would say so. Yeah. (laughs) I have seen you in action doing evals and continuity of care and and navigating that. And I'm like, she didn't learn that in a speech (laughs) path program.
0: (laughs) Well, we had like, we had a psych of um, death and dying course that was super, super interesting. um, That went into a lot of this. And it's just, you know you don't want to ever think about it too much but the way that the human brain kind of deals with all that is super interesting and going into stage 6 would be depression um and a lot of times grief involves going in and out of depression um so it's not one of those things that you can think that they've had you know a really really good day and then it's done. Like these can come in cycles. Depression comes in waves. Um, and it's important to talk about, you know, encouragement and seeking help. And because they tend to isolate That's of when you're depressed, you tend to go into your own little shell and not want to be around other people. So kind of being aware of signs are really important.
1: Okay. So with our families that have special needs, a lot of times they already feel isolated because of the um, the physical demand of the child. Oh, and by that, I mean, it's very difficult for them to actually physically leave their homes because they're connected to a ventilator or the kids and um, uh, a hospital bed or, um, you know, they're, they're afraid of what if somebody says something inappropriate about my child in public. And I get that because I have a special needs brother-in-law and we go out in public and people, you know, get confused or, you know, why are they walking, guiding, leading this man? I can't fathom that as, as, um, as a parent, but just as in my role as the sister-in-law that, is a sucker for transformers, you know. And we have to be aware that that depression and that isolation can be um I guess quicker to reach that level given the more complex the child is. Um but then some people suffer from the depression and the cases the their child's case is not that involved. I'm not belittling it, it's just those are red flags to, to look for and be aware. Uh, um, a little bit of hope on that. There's some really awesome support groups and mom groups that are not just found on Facebook that are available in your local communities. And, um, they do home visits. Uh, you might want to check into those, uh, because I don't want it to be all doom and gloom. <laughs> yep. And then
0: the end Um, the final stage was acceptance and hope. Um, Accepting what has really happened. It's known as a positive stage. And it's not feeling defeated. It's realizing that it's something that was not in my control. And moving on with life, you know, trying to plan for the future. Realizing it's still upsetting but it's no longer unbearable. And so that's, I think, and the, the big thing is a lot of times it's hard when you skip stages to fully heal. So yes, not all these of these stages are things that you want someone to have to go through, but feeling all of these emotions And going through all of that helps you to heal in the long run.
1: And that's what we're about. Y'all, we are in the business of healing. It is our job to help the tiny human either habilitate or rehabilitate. And if we can't reach that family to get them to buy into that HAB or rehab program, then we're not going to be able to do our job as healers. And, um, I think, um, in case y'all haven't heard of it, the welcome to Holland poem. I mean, I always want to say they land in Paris, but it's not, they land in Italy. And in that poem, they talk about how you have this entire plan during a pregnancy to get off and jet shut, jet, blah, blah, blah. there's a reason I teach them to talk and not, or talk to swallow and not to talk. Um, but the whole comparison is the pregnancy to Italy. and then. You get off the plane and you're not in Italy, but you're in Holland. No, you're right. It's, all it's of the Paris, sudden. You, you're right. Yeah. It is Paris. Oh, I thought it was Italy. No, this poem that I pulled up, it's Texas parent to parent, Texas parent to parent. It gives a comparison to Italy, not Paris. I'm confused. But whatever. You go one destination, you get off and you land in another place. But one day the grief subsides and bam, you can see the joy for where you're at. And so that's our job is to get them there, to help the tiny humans find their joy and their families along the process. So we got to recognize all those seven stages. Um, okay, so super personal question. Aaron. which one of those seven stages do you struggle with as a clinician? Like when you walk in and you find the families that are stuck there, is there one that you have a harder time with? Um that's a good question. Mhm.
0: Because I know we all have our own yeah. truths.
1: For me it's anger. When I walk in and I see a family that's stuck in the anger cycle, um I would say it's anger followed by denial. When the family is stuck in the denial cycle, I struggle to get them to the right first or second or third opinions to support the diagnostic process and to build the interprofessional team, but that's because, um, I know my leadership style is pace setting and I run too fast and I have to work on slowing down and that's my emotional intelligence testing results. But, uh, those are the two that I struggle with, which makes me now that I'm more aware of it and, you know, I've been aware of it. I try to go, into those homes and into those sessions with a little bit, um, more patience. Mm-hmm. Is that that, that's, that sounds more good.
0: I think, yes. I mean, it depends what the anger is directed at. If it's, mm-hmm. I feel like it's directed at me, then I struggle a little bit. If I feel like it's directed at someone else, I think I can help them hone in on that a little bit. Um, I think... I find the depression hard just because I think it, I can feel it. Like you walk into a home and you feel the sadness and that can take a toll on just like you as a clinician. So Mm -hmm. I find that difficult at times because I find myself leaving those sessions being sad. And as much as like I know I I like to think I'm pretty good at helping them and just listening and being there. Like when you leave is then when you feel that stress and just that pain because it's, Mm -hmm. you know, in what we do, I feel like. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because we carry our hearts on our sleeves. And yep. Absolutely. But at least with the depression, I...
0: I think you know where it's coming from more so if that makes sense. Like that's a t- easier telltale of what's going on. Whereas like anger and bargaining and things like that, it's difficult to decipher what they need. Like what do you need from me when you're angry? How do I combat this? How do I deal with the bargaining? You know, some people just want to be able to talk through that and you let them. And some people want you to help come up with a solution and tell them there's nothing they could have done. So with you know, I think that that sometimes is hard to decide what they need at the moment with those two stages.
1: Um, the ones the the cases that I struggle with when they're stuck in their grief cycle are the ones where the parents admit that they did, um, drugs or alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've had the cases where we know that the child tested positive in utero. They're still in the home, and then I've had I've gone out and had to refer back to DSS because there's signs symptoms of drug exposure currently. Um, sorry, in South Carolina, DSS is Department of Social Services, and those I struggle with and carry with me. And I say those because there's been enough that we're starting to kind of rack up a tally mark, um, and. Because the family's in a state of denial that this could have happened to them while they admitted to doing those lifestyle choices during the pregnancy. Right. And yet they continue to. But that gets into the whole question of mental health and addiction. And that is grappling. I mean, this is this issue is systemic. Individuals from all walks of life. And uh those those are the ones that I really struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But we have each other and there's community supports even for practitioners because we all get burnout from taking those kind of cases home with us. I mean, not literally, but I mean, Heavens to Betsy, sometimes the emotional component does feel rather literally. (laughs) We're like, "Yes, okay, Michelle, be happy. Say something funny. Okay, um, Aaron, say something funny. no, I'm just kidding. No pressure. Don't be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> okay, so how does this correlate to postpartum depression and PTSD? So, do you want to go through PTSD first? Um, yeah, let's start with that. Okay. Um so okay. we'll start
0: with just the basic um definition. PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, is a disorder that develops and some people have experienced a shocking, scary, or dangerous event. Um, it is natural to feel afraid during and after a traumatic situation. Fear triggers many split-second changes in the body to help defend against danger to avoid it. Um, this fight-or-flight response is typical, and nearly everyone will experience a range of trauma. Most people recover from symptoms initially and naturally, but those who continue to experience problems can be diagnosed with PTSD. Um, And that involves like feeling stressed or frightened even when they're not in danger. So symptoms usually begin within three months of a traumatic event, but sometimes they begin like years afterwards. So if, you know, our brain has a way of kind of blocking things out. And people will sometimes, mm -hmm, like they don't even remember that it happened. And then they have this moment of realization where it all comes back to them. And the big thing is they're severe enough to interfere with your relationships, your work. And, you know, some people recover in six months, some people much longer. And, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists involved in diagnosing. PTSD. But there's, I mean, that's the biggest thing I think is it, if it really impacts your life, people are going to have these reactions to traumatic events. But when it is impacting the way you can live, is when it's really PTSD.
1: Okay. So PTSD with our patients manifests in a couple different ways. Um first and foremost when I go into a home we live near a major army base and pretty close near to an air force base and I've worked with a lot of families whose parents the fathers actually had PTSD from um a combat incident so and and that can manifest in different ways um I had one house where the mom just told me um do not come if there's ever a thunderstorm if it's your scheduled time and it's a thunderstorm, do not come. And I was like, okay, honey, but I mean, there's I don't cross any bridges. I was thinking like literally, like there was no like watershed areas for me to like drive off the road. And she goes, It's all right, honey, I'll explain on the way out the door. And so she took me outside. And as we were walking to a car, she relayed to me that the thunderstorms um uh brought back her husband's PTSD and it was best that nobody was around during those incidents. It had gotten better, but it could still get a little violent. And I was like, okay, all right. And I was super green to early intervention. And, um, you know, but I got to see him going through counseling and recovery. So one personal safety of the child, the family, as well as the clinician, PTSD manifests in that inner world. Uh, now there is research to support PTSD for special needs parents, NICU survivors. Our parents that plan, apparently not Italy, but Paris, and then go to Holland, um, that the way they were, diag- they, they were given the diagnosis of their child's uh, developmental delay or disability or the genetic condition the uh the trauma sustaining around um recurrent and or one very large traumatic hospitalization all of those can relate really, can result in p t s d and and we have to be aware that that can happen and what resources to give to the family um, what else am i forgetting there? um
0: I mean they talk about how about the National Center for PTSD says about 7 or 8 out of every 100 people will experience it at some point in their lives. Um and it, you know, risk factors, some of them are pretty obvious like living through dangerous events, getting hurt, seeing another person hurt or seeing you know, you can I think you can also experience PTSD kind of through other people, um childhood dr- trauma, And, you know, we can, there was actually an interesting article that talked about how there are children that will be diagnosed with ADD, that those symptoms of ADD are actually symptoms of PTSD. So kind of being aware of that, you know, kids that wet the bed after having learned to use the toilet, um, kids forgetting how to or being unable to talk, which is very prevalent Are important to what we do because a child that's selectively mute. I mean, not saying that all of them, but that can be some a red Mm -hmm. flag. And
1: oh my goodness, yeah, oh my goodness. There was a kid. Oh my stars. There was this kid back in the schools that I worked at a lifetime ago, and the selective mutism came on, and we could never figure out where. And I always thought the dad was beating the wife. I wonder if that kid had pizza. There's
0: because I don't think you uh, I don't know, that's just not a common something we think about with our, you know, our kids and our patients. And they also say acting out scary events during playtime and then being unusually clingy are like four of the main um signs. And I think you also have to think about teens, children that go through these traumatic events, they don't have the emotional intelligence to deal with the things that happen. And guilt can really, really creep in them because they don't understand that they're not at fault for a lot of things.
1: Um, I have a little girl in my caseload whose younger sister, she's four, her younger sister is um, just turned two. And when her younger sister has a seizure she used to think it was mm-hmm. her fault that she didn't clean up her toys or pick up her toys and so sissy had to go to the hospital because i didn't and i'm like no baby girl no baby girl but like i mean that mm-hmm. little and one. i mean
0: kids that have gone through traumatic things can be can be taken advantage of in the way that they can be told that things are their fault that aren't um mm-hmm. and they but the big thing they and, go ahead
1: no, 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 they, no, no, go. But
0: they just talk about like the importance of seeking out support, um, you know, having positive coping strategies, things like that. There's a lot of, it's really important to seek help and, you know, if it's someone that you know, give them those resources, give, you know. There are tons of support groups. There are tons of ways to get the help that you need, but that's really, really important.
1: Um, and, and one thing just to bring it home, these kiddos that we're working with, the child themselves can have PTSD. I mean, how many times have we had a kiddo who's a frequent flyer at the local oh, hospital? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, they come home. I have um, another little one on my caseload right now who the family caught on camera afterwards, the nurse force feeding. And we couldn't figure out what the outlying factor was on while all of a sudden this kid who went from PO went self-imposed in PO. And then there it was like literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, PTSD for the child themselves right. and if they're nonverbal How are we supposed to be able to understand?
0: And I mean, I had a little one that spent, I don't even know how much time in the hospital. And so Mm -hmm. anytime the doorbell rang, anytime a new person came in, it was panic, fight Fight or flight. flight, Like
1: Mm -hmm.
0: we'd have DSATs, we'd have just crying. It was... It was a lot just because of all that trauma in the hospital builds up in those – poor I mean, that's all they know is what scrubs mean and what a new person coming in means. And like you said, they don't have the communication to tell us that that's what's going on. And that's – I mean, that's where we come into play a lot is understanding when they're communicating, how they're communicating, helping to see those signs because so – You know, it's not always that easy to pick up on them.
1: Okay. I just thought of something and I accidentally hit play on it in the background. My favorite podcast, 99% Invisible, um, when you were talking about the sounds triggering, um, acting as Mm -hmm. a trigger, they had an episode specifically on um, sounds and the impact of sounds. And I'm trying to find it, but they talked all about... um, Uh, how they're actually going through in hospitals, Sound and health from May 24th, that was it, sound and health hospitals, sound uh, and how the sounds within the hospital causes um, uh, PTSD and or anxiety in patients and nurses and hospitals and floor staff because we get so autopiloted to those horrible sounds and they're coming up with new medical devices that actually uh, mimic a heartbeat, but it's through melody. And so the nurses on the floor can hear it. And when the melody starts getting a little bit more intense there, that's when they know to go in there. Not like, mur, 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 mur. like, I mean, that's my bad. Oh my God. I can hear my kid sister. Who's a, a cardiac nurse being like, Michelle, that's not what it sounds like, <laughs> but like, but there it is. So go check out May 24th episode. Um, and I'm sorry that I accidentally hit play. <laughs> no, that's cool though. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll be excited. But, I mean, imagine our tiny humans—how they won't be triggered by a doorbell or or a microwave going. Mm-hmm. Off. I
0: mean, it was even like, I yeah. uh, remember the OT I worked with in the hospital, just being aware of the way that we talk and the tone that we use, because her voice was always just so calming. And I think, mm-hmm. especially in like a hospital setting, we so quickly are yelling and. Just talking with the parent in the room, but you don't realize that tone can then have an impact on the child and build that anxiety, build that stress, which is why I'm very, very conscious, especially with a lot of my patients that I feel like have anxiety to be careful about what tone I'm using.
1: Mm-hmm. I try to go in it and look like a giant cartoon and make <laughs> kids giggle. Sometimes And you see me. And some of the families are like, is this chick for real? Um, I have one nurse who I'm pretty sure thinks I'm touched. But you know what? If I walk in the door and make silly faces at this little baby, I mean, she's known me for a minute. Um, and then start stomping my floor because she likes the vestibular input of like the floor and like me making the loud noises. For that kid, me acting like a giant cartoon helps alleviate her PTSD. From all, if I walk, and otherwise, if I walked in in scrubs, she starts. You can you can see her having a hard time catching her breath, like rapid shallow mm-hmm. breathing. Um, what what is the word? Clavicular breathing. That's what I was groping for. Oh, it's a little bit of a at the end of a long day. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm not sure if you've caught the updates yet, but I have the pleasure, if you haven't seen it already, of announcing the 2020 Speech Therapy PD.com conference at sea. We are going aboard a Royal Caribbean Alaskan cruise departing Vancouver, British Columbia, July 10th through 17th of 2020. And I am thrilled and humbled to be announcing that I will be presenting. I have a, a three hour course, a two hour course, a one hour course, and I'm co-presenting another three hour course. And my co-presentation will be with the one and only Lee Ann Porter of Speech Uncensored, which is Speech Therapy PD's newest adult Pod course podcast that just added to our lineup. And Marisha McGordy, the guru behind SLP Now, will also be there. And if you register before September 30th, then you get a free six-month subscription to SLP Now. So again, make sure that you register before September 30th of 2019 for the Speech Therapy PD conference at sea um which is july 10th through 17th of 2020 and i cannot wait to see y'all aboard a ship where we're gonna see real life bears and like hopefully we'll get to see northern lights so whoop whoop! see you at sea bye okay all right i, I can we let's let's go into postpartum um, do we cover all the high points of PTSD? No, Um Ms. Spook speaking there. <laughs> all right. So postpartum um, depression and anxiety disorders. Uh, it's more commonly called postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. Uh, there's something everybody needs to go check out. It's the Eidenberg scale. Am I saying that right? You I think Eidenberg. so. Yeah, Eden. Eidenberg, it's for Scotland. I'm not Scottish. I apologize if you're in Scotland, please send me a clip of how to say it correctly. Um, but it's the Eidenberg scale of, uh, depression. And, um, I know Fresno has a quick copy on their website. It's a PDF, um, fresno.uscf.edu backslash pediatrics, backslash downloads, backsplash, whatever, Eidenberg Pdf, And it will pop up And it's a questionnaire. And theoretically, every new mom will be given that scale at her postpartum checkup with the pediatricians. And after you have a baby, there's a lot of checkup appointments. There's like the three-day one, the two-week one. Um, And then whether or not you're on weight checks for the newborn, you may come in every week to every two weeks thereafter. And their own o b g y n follow up they are supposed to be given that scale, however, that doesn't always happen. so a lot of our mothers unfortunately fall through the cracks, so the prevalence um postpartum depression mood and anxiety disorders um it affects ten to twenty five percent of mothers uh However, they, we kind of feel like that number is actually underestimated. And that basically means that there are 400,000 or more infants born to mothers who are depressed in America alone. And that's, um, that's pretty uh, high. And that does not include those that have special needs. I mean, that I don't have the data on that. What is the um, postpartum percentage for children that have special needs? Um, I'm willing to bet that it's probably higher. So the three major classifications are postpartum blues, postpartum um, depression and anxiety, and postpartum psychosis. And here's where it gets a little tricky. Uh, postpartum uh, blues happen two to three days to two weeks right after the baby is born. Okay. From a cellular chemical level to all the moms out there, you have all these hormones raging through your body. And then all of a sudden, you don't have all these hormones raging from your body. And you are sometimes hemorrhaging. Um, There's a lot of horrible night sweats. Anybody that's listening is pregnant. It's your first. Be prepared to sleep on towels because there are a lot of horrible night sweats, especially during those baby blue stays. And baby blues for those first two to three days to the first two weeks, um, uh, the moms are exhausted and it's, um, you just feel fatigued and, um, just wore out. Um, now, Aaron, I'm going to pick on you because you're a millennial and, um, you you don't have um, postpartum blues as you don't have a tiny human. I mean you have you're having issues with the kitty cat, but Cola, well we'll use Koli Kitty as an example. How about bless Koli Kitty? Um, but a lot of your friends are in the age range where they're just starting to plan or are in the market for, and social media sells it like having a brand new baby is the most joyful time of mm-hmm. your life, right? Yeah. But, like, who's who's that Instagrammer lady that you follow that calls it like it is? Um, And she just had the baby Amy and somebody?
0: She just had a baby that's um, now he's still in the NICU. And she very much – she had – I forget. I don't remember what it's called. But she had a really, really rare disorder where she – her ovaries were taken out. And she had to have blood transfusions and all that because her organ pregnancy had so much trauma to her body that it was kind of shutting down some of her organs. But she's very open about, like, what it's like. And it's so interesting to watch someone that I watched as, like, I hate to say that, that I follow people on Instagram that are influencers. But, like, I just like the way she dressed. And now I'm, like, following her story of having a baby that's in the NICU. And it's... It's she like showed the first time she held him a week after she had him and how, you know, crying and how hard it is to be dealing with all she's dealing with. But, yeah, it's.
1: But she's bringing awareness. She's giving a voice to all these people that are out there talking about how and to the to those of us that have been there, we're taught it's supposed to be this joyful, happy time. So you're not supposed to have baby blues. You're not supposed to have postpartum, but we do. And that's okay. And I'm so grateful. Can you, um, can you find her? Can you find, what is her handle? Amber because Lancaster like I, is her name. Okay. I am grateful that there are people like her and Amy, Amy, is yes, the other yes. one, the comedian. Yes. She's showing the ugly side and the honest side in a delightfully joyful way. But we have to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Well, and what is what, it? Go ahead. Normalize? Mm-hmm. What is the Hashtag for that, like, normalize mental I health? Think something Isn't like that. Isn't that a hashtag? Or, but yes. I remember, like, I had a friend who
0: she knew, I don't know if her family had talked about it when she was younger, but, like, she knew that her mom had postpartum depression. And when she told me about it, I didn't have as much awareness of it, and she kind of talked about how her mom, like didn't really want to hold her for the first few weeks or so she just couldn't really get out of bed. And I, my first reaction was like, I don't, I didn't know how to respond to it. And now the more I learn about it, you realize, you know, but it's a, it's mental health, it's hormones. It's something you can't control. It's,
1: mm-hmm. it's chemical. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's just it. So if you are listening and you are going through it there is help there is hope just reach out and and at the end of the podcast we'll give a list of like different um support groups but um you don't have to slap a smile on your face right after you have a baby. Honey, you're going to get peed on. Somebody's going to poop on you. There will be more vomit than you could ever fathom vomit, not to mention all your cravings. You're pretty sure you're never want to get back in the saddle again because your husband or your spouse did this to you. Clearly it is all their fault. Do I sound like I've been there? I have been there. I was the token child for postpartum anxiety. Now, Baby blues last for, again, first couple of days, which is interesting because your milk lets in, um, my boobs are burning just thinking about it. You hit the second stage of, um, your milk drop within the first two to three days. And then within two weeks you hit that third and final stage. Um, I think it's kind of amazing that baby blues are correlated to breastfeeding and Erin, you've got a ton of stuff in here to cover on breastfeeding, Mm -hmm. um, but um, postpartum depression and anxiety, what were the signs and symptoms? Can you go through those, Yes, Karen? Um, do you find I got them? So let me find it. Because- and this is after two weeks. So we hit the two-week mark. It's no longer considered baby blues, which I think is just true sleep deprivation mm-hmm. and constant smell of poo. And then we roll into the postpartum. And they
0: talk component. about postpartum depression does not occur because of something the mother does or does not do. That's very important. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the common Mm -hmm. symptoms, feeling sad, hopeless, empty, overwhelmed, crying more often than usual for no apparent reason, um, worrying or feeling overly anxious, feeling moody, irritable or restless, oversleeping or being unable to sleep even when the baby is asleep, um, having trouble concentrating, remembering details, anger, rage, losing interest, Um, physical aches and pains, headaches, eat like eating habits, changing significantly, like eating too much or too little withdrawing from friends and family and having a big one, having trouble bonding or forming an emotional attachment with the, with her baby, um, Mm -hmm. and doubting ability to take care of her baby and thinking about harming herself or her baby. So, okay.
1: All right. For me personally, this hits all the feels right after goose was born. We had labor stopped six times in order to stay pregnant with my firstborn. And when he was born, I was petrified of walking down the stairs with him because I'm a klutz. I say this Knowing good and bloody well that this afternoon goose tripped up the stairs and we thought he broke his nose by tripping over his own feet, walking up the stairs. So like in retrospect, um, but I was panicked about walking down the stairs. Like I would stand at the top of the stairs and couldn't catch my breath for fear that I would fall down the stairs holding him and Christian would have to come and get him and take him down the stairs for the first couple of weeks. And I went back to work at six weeks. We financially did not have the luxury of taking a longer time off because conversation for another day in the United States, we are one of the very first very few first world nations that does not have paid maternity leave, okay, for the parent, either parent, right? And so six weeks I had to go back to work. And I was working with a family and one of the interpreters um Rosalia, Rosalia leaned over and blessed, I can't say her name as pretty as she says it because she was from Venezuela and it was just beautiful the way she said it. But um Rosalia looked over and she took my hand and we were sitting in this little single wide, and um the other mom, they must have been talking about me. The patient's mommy sat down on one side, Miss Rosalia sat down on the other side, and she goes, How are you feeling? And I was like, I'm fine, everything's great. These are all the lies that new mommies say. And then she goes, no, Michelle, how are you really doing? And then they both held my hands and that was it. I was like, it was like the floodgates opened, all the tears rolled out because they asked. Because somebody asked, how are you really doing? And that's what it took. So are we actually asking our parents with open ears and heart, how are you really doing? Because again, if they've got postpartum anxiety and depression, and if you're one of those SLPs that have your CLCs and you're in there for lactation counseling, you can be the person that catches a mom that is... Um, in the Valley and help get her team to get her back to a mountaintop or at least get her head up above the Valley to let her kind of see the other side. Um, and, and that's, that's what this is about. And remember this, we are supposed to make all referrals necessary. Okay. I didn't mean to cry, but no, but. And I think a lot
0: of, I mean, you said to me, you you know i you could as a mom i feel like it's easier to bring things up like this especially if you've mm-hmm. gone through it but there are ways to ask your families and just have them be comfortable to tell you how they're feeling or open up in certain ways without necessarily bringing up the postpartum depression talk and i think that there yes. are clinicians that are very scared to even broach the topic. And like, I remember I was working with an early interventionist and I kind of brought up concerns I had. And this goes back to kind of the grief cycle because it was frustrating with this mom because she would cancel a lot and no show and, you know, we didn't feel like we were really getting a lot out of her, but my thought was that there was something else going on and there seemed to be, she was sleeping a lot and there seemed to be a possible, you know, depression going on. And, and like you taught me, this can happen for years after because this child was Mm -hmm. closer to two, I think. Um, but I think it's important to, if you're not completely comfortable, like, fully addressing your thoughts of what's going on, even giving them the opportunity to open up. And as they open up, giving them resources and things like that, like there are ways to slowly approach the topic, I think, because it does affect our kids. Like, you know, she, she was taking naps with him. So he was sleeping a lot and he was not really getting a lot of engagement. So that can really affect the kids
1: that we're treating, mm-hmm. and i um, you and I have shared little ones where, um, uh, the family had postpartum depression because they had depression, um, previously. Mm-hmm. And if you have a family who has depression at baseline or an anxiety disorder at baseline or another psychological component at baseline or drug and alcohol use at baseline, and then they conceive, uh, it increases their likelihood mm-hmm. those, those risk factors. Yes. Um, um, there's one, there's one that we don't normally get into. And, and all my years of working, I've only ever seen it once. Um, it was postpartum psychosis, wait, squirrel, um, postpartum depression and anxiety disorders can last for up to two to three years after the baby is born. Uh, and, and it in truth can take up to seven years. And I saw some research that said 10, for a woman's body to completely regain all of the nutrients that were sucked out of us by the tiny humans that we create, uh, I, I mean, talking down—that's why women get uh, not brittle bone disease. Good lord Almighty, uh, what is the little osteoporosis? Thank you. Yes, I know my teacher. <laughs> that will be me. My five-four stature is going to be five-two in about twenty years, and hopefully not as round as it could go, <laughs> but. That's because we lose all those nutrients because they go to the tiny humans. I mean, that's awesome. That's wonderful. Good thing Goose got it because otherwise he would have shattered his nose this afternoon on this test. Okay. Back on track. Postpartum psychosis. I've only known one person that this actually happened to. Postpartum psychosis is an incredibly rare condition. Typically happens within the first week after delivery. Signs and symptoms are severe. There is no questions asked. Most of these individuals are, um, hospitalized, uh, severe confusion, disorientation, obsessive thoughts, hallucinations, delusions, extreme sleep disturbances, excessive energy and agitation, paranoia, and attempts to harm yourself or the baby. Um, and and I knew that this actually happened to a colleague and, uh, it was, um, with her second, uh, they couldn't figure out what was going on. And, she she turned to me, she goes, darling, I just went off the loony bin. I was fine. And then I wasn't fine. And then I really wasn't fine. <laughs> and I was like, so what happened? She goes, well, we just don't talk about it. But I mean, that was six years ago. We're fine. And we just moved on about the conversation. And I was like, well, okay then. But uh, yeah, she was hospitalized, I think for like two or three weeks uh, while they had to work through it. And it was just Severe postpartum psychosis. Um, normally it will not be us home health folks that catch that, but our NICU friends uh, or our, uh, our our little ones that um, maybe ele- that work in like a lactation building that are there for the very first week or two. Most of us that work in the home health, it can take a couple weeks uh, for the referral and all the necessary documentation to get in. But You might want to check and ask uh, with the pediatrician whether or not the family has a history of postpartum psychosis if you are concerned. Um, And then I know we're like short on time and we have to get to the seeds of joy. But one thing that we do need to talk about is postpartum depression and fathers. Um, The Mr. Dawson had morning sickness when I was pregnant with Goose. And it turns out that's a thing. I was not a very understanding wife to the Mr. Dawson's um, morning sickness as I had just basically vomited for three or four months straight. So him occasionally getting queasy, I was not really that. um... We'll go with tolerant. Tolerance a really good word. I was not so tolerant of Mr. Dawson's um, morning sickness. However, postpartum depression and fathers happens as well. And, um, it more likely will happen if the dad has a history of depression, but it's because there's so many changes and extra responsibilities on them. And often they really feel the financial component because they've gone back to work while, excuse me, while the, the, um, the birth mother, mother, or the other partner is staying home. And there is a fantastic support for them out there. And it's called the new dad manual. You can find it at www.newdadmanual.ca backslash. It's put together by the nation of Canada. Um, it reads like a comedic car manual. And I wish we had had that because it is it definitely makes you get a uh, belly laugh. Um, so everybody out there, if you need a new laugh, go check out the new dad manual. Aaron, I think we have to get, um, we, we definitely have to blog the new dad manual, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's, um, I'm not saying it's going to cure depression. Please do not misconstrue that in any way, shape or form, but it will help you build a bridge with the new dads in your life and bring a little bit of joy to them. So go check out the new dad manual. Uh, out there. Okay. So I think we talked about postpartum depression and anxiety, PTSD, and we talked about how grief and how grief intersperses in. Aaron, give us some joy. Give us some happy, fun resources. Um. So let's
0: see. I mean, there's a ton of support groups out there, which I feel like can be very specific to you know, what's happening in your life, especially now with social media, I feel like it can be good and bad, but there are, it's very easy to find those groups. If you go to like the national center for PTSD, they have a lot of really great groups and resources. Um, I think seeking out, I mean, I think that anyone can benefit from therapy, no matter what, stage of your life you are and you get to talk about yourself for an hour. So there's nothing wrong with
1: that. (laughs) Everybody I've been through therapy. Um, I don't know too many people personally who haven't gone through therapy. I wanted to go through, I went through therapy because I needed somebody to hear it was okay to have, um, feelings of rage around my ex-husband and, uh, and, and was told that that was totally normal and getting validation that I wasn't crazy was it did my soul a plethora of good and allowed me to find my voice to share my walk with others to help them get out of it so yeah also my counselor was right across the street from a bakery shop so there was I always rewarded myself with homemade cupcakes immediately after my
0: counseling session well now there's even like you can there are counselors that will like come to you like you can take a walk in the park when you talk with them or there are really quick. um, A lot of websites that have like therapists that will respond very quickly and online if you have just thoughts or you can't get to an appointment and you just kind of need someone to help talk you through things. Um, Mm -hmm. There's, you know, especially in the hospitals, they have tons of resources on support groups um, that they host or are, you know, in the immediate area. Um, I'm trying to think of some other specific.
1: Um, there's a really good podcast that I like. It's called the therapy show with Lisa mustard. Uh, she is a, uh, a counselor. She has her very own podcast and, uh, her specialty, actually her background was, um, Uh, family counseling for our troops, our vets. And a lot of it has to do with um, PTSD, postpartum. um, And um, she's absolutely one of the most awe-inspiring women you can meet. So um, I highly recommend that you check her show out in basically anything she touches because she's just utterly a joyful person. And
0: especially in like our world of early intervention, like reaching – out to service coordinators, there's a lot of different organizations that will pair parents with children of similar diagnoses or have community events that you can go to. Because I feel like, especially for our patients and their families, being around people that are going through something similar helps to communicate and talk about what you're going through. Because as much as we're there to support our families, like we don't, no, I don't know what a parent of a child with special needs is going through. I don't know what a, you know, a father who has PTSD from being in the military is going through. So, it's just so important to be around people that are experiencing those same things cuz it it helps to open up and helps you to see, you know, they may be in a different stage of the grief cycle and seeing them have worked through wherever stage you're in can really help because someone's come out on the other side and they actually know what you're going through. Because I know it can be really frustrating when you have someone support, you know, their job is to support you, but when you have someone giving you advice and, and they don't really know what you're going through. So I think that's really, really important to seek out those community supports just to be surrounded by people, not necessarily to talk, you know, not necessarily even to talk about what you're going through, but just to listen to them and see where they're at. I think it's helpful.
1: Mm-hmm. Give you hope for mm-hmm. the future.
0: And two, I mean, just as a little side note, you know, we see so many people families that are going through grief and things like that but it's really really important to recognize that in yourself too as a clinician because if you're not taking care of yourself then you can't take care of your families and their grief is going to then usually impact you even more so because you haven't dealt with yours and it's okay too to be in a stage like to acknowledge that something has happened and you're angry or you're in pain. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that so that you know where you're headed and how to work on that. Because if you're in denial of it, they're just going to keep creeping up
1: on you. Mm-hmm. Um, check on your friends and your coworkers that have just had a baby. Um, one, bring them food. They're exhausted and they're too tired to make their own food. But two, uh as a, as a fellow colleague, really truthfully, just like she said, those of you that have had the babies and you've had the postpartum components to go through it, or if you have PTSD because of you, um, the walk with your own personal little one or your own backstory, um, checking on our colleagues to help them find their place uh, and their healing journey to help others heal. Um, that's probably one of the greatest things that we can do for one another. And seek out
0: Um, like if if you are going through grief or something, I think it may be hard for some people, but, and a lot of people don't want to bring their personal life to work. But if you seek out like one coworker or one friend that kind of knows what's going on, it can be helpful not to have someone backing you, but like, you're going to have bad days. Like I remember when I started my CF, I had just lost my Nana, who is my favorite human in the entire planet. And I don't really like to talk about what's going on in my life, but I made sure to tell my supervisor what was happening because I was having a lot of anxiety and I was having moments of bawling my eyes out before I went to a patient's house just because I was sad and could put myself together. But it was important for someone to know that like, if I was having a bad day, I was just having a bad day. And like, it just made me feel better to have someone be aware of what was happening. I didn't want them to feel bad for me or, like, you know, feel like I needed something extra. But just to have someone know, I think, made me feel better.
1: Yeah, because that was your—that's your person, always your person. Yeah. Mm. To everybody out there, to our grandmas, huzzah! <laughs> 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 okay. And um, in the immediate future, give your families information on how to call their doctors. If you feel that it's appropriate, call 911. Call their physician. If you don't see a change, um, there's also the 24 hour hotline for national suicide prevention 1 800 273 TALK or 1 800 273 8255. And if you need it in TTY, it's 1-800-799-4889. And you can also check out www.mentalhealth.gov or go to the Nas- National Institute um, is NIMH website, uh, www.nimh.nih.gov. Um, and um, for a little bit of joy, Check out the new Dad manual put together by Canada,
0: oh Canada
1: <laughs> oh, Canada, I don't know sometimes you do your A's and I'm like, oh, Rochester, how far away is that from the from the border? <laughs> yeah, we're basically
0: Canada, it's like across the lake,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's too cold, that's too cold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, and last but not least, um, for everybody out there, um, we are a little over a month away, October 25th through 26th. Catch me in New Mexico. Um, I will be at the Albu- um, New Mexico Speech Language Hearing Association Conference in Albuquerque presenting on Saturday, um, October 26th. And I'll be doing, I think it's a six hour lecture that day. Um, somebody please... We'll have to do the Bugs Bunny. Um, I think I was supposed to make a left at Albuquerque picture because I'm like, or left at Albuquerque. Um, I I will need a picture of that because it's like one of my favorite jokes from Looney Tunes. And um, for all of those that are impacted by Dorian this week, um, you are in Aaron and I's hearts. um, And everybody else who is part of seeing First Bite put together. So shout out. And a thank you to Chad and to um jill and darla and heather and yumi and who else am i missing did i hit everybody i think i got everybody but um everybody on our end is thinking about you this week so be safe hug your peeps and uh let me switch over to questions cool hey it's michelle dawson you're all things peds slp here and you know me i am nerdy and I am comfortable with it. I prefer the term geek chic. So I can't stress the importance enough of, you know, replenishing my geek chic soul. So insert feeding matters. Their pediatric feeding resource library will fulfill what you need in order to do your job more efficiently. So from published research to helpful videos and recipes. Feeding Matters Resource Library has all the bases covered. Simply visit bit.ly backslash Library to access the virtual hub of valuable information on pediatric feeding disorders. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP.